Hi folks, a shout out this week to Sharon Pask, who did a review of the Take On Board podcast. Thanks, Sharon. She says, gender pay gap episode, very informative session with Emma Ray. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sharon, for taking the time to do a review. We love to get reviews here. And thanks to Emma for doing that episode. Second announcement for this week. This week we're hearing from Kari Hatch. And listen right through to the end of the episode where she shares resources because not only does she share some resources in the episode itself, but sent me a voice memo afterwards with some additional ones. So there's some gold in there. Radio, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Take On Board podcast, where we talk all things boards and governance. I'm your host, Halia Svensson. Here at Take On Board, we'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you build your governance wisdom. We'll shine a light on how to navigate your way onto your first board or to build your board portfolio. We'll also help you to work through those challenges that keep you awake at night. Each week, I'll talk to women who have been there, done that, and together we'll discover what we need to take on board to be your best in the boardroom. I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which I am. So I'm on Wurundjeri country, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging, and any First Nations people we might have here today. Today on the Take On Board podcast, I'm speaking with Rochelle Towett about recruiting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples to boards. First, let me tell you about Rochelle. Rochelle Towett, OAM, received her OAM in acknowledgement of her achievements in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leadership, governance and education. She is a member of the Indigenous Advisory Board for infrastructure company Broadspectrum. She's formerly a member of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Employment Advisory Committee at the University of Canberra, formerly the co-chair of the Prime Minister's expert panel on the review of remote Indigenous housing, and formerly a board member of Aboriginal Hostels and Gamala Investments. Today, she is the Managing Director of Pipeline Talent, a 100% Indigenous-owned recruitment company specialising in Indigenous appointments. Pipeline Talent draws on its extensive database and its professional, personal, community and family connections to match your requirements with Indigenous leaders. As the former CEO of the Australian Indigenous Leadership Centre, Rochelle trained thousands of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leaders and was recognised with a wide range of awards, including Westpac Community CEO of the Year in 2014 and recognition as one of the Australian Financial Review's Australian Women of Influence. Welcome to the Take On Board podcast, Rochelle. Thanks, Helia. It is great to have you here and people may have already pricked up their ears with your organisation, Pipeline Talent. You are going to have some great tips about recruiting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples to the boardroom. However, as always, before we get into that conversation, I would like to dig a little bit deeper about you. Firstly, can you tell me where were your mum and dad born and where are your ancestors from? So my ancestors, first and foremost, are from Wanneroo country in Singleton, New South Wales. And before we start, I'd just like to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and thank them for allowing us to be on this beautiful country we call Australia. I'm on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people here in Canberra, where I've lived for a very long time. But my parents, my mum and dad, were both born in Western Sydney 
where I was born as well, in Blacktown Hospital. All the nurses that were on strike yesterday, I noticed on the TV from the Blacktown Hospital. So that was good to see how it has changed so much because we moved to Canberra when I was very young and my dad used to work six days a week in the city and he used to catch the train in and out of town. And one day he realised that it was Sunday and it was the day that he didn't work. So we were all going to Melbourne to start our new life. Dad thought he liked the horse races or uh, the greyhound races as it might have been, but fortunately I think um, we only had enough petrol money to get us to Canberra, so that's where we stayed. He changed the story for us to all become public servants rather than only having enough money for petrol to get us to Canberra. <laughs> oh, I love that story, how you find your place. Interesting. So you've already told us where you were born. What about siblings? Do you have any siblings? It sounds like you did there. I think you said you and your siblings. I'm the eldest of four. I've got two sisters who live in, one lives in Townsville, and she left, I think, when she was about 20 to go and work for a six-month transfer, her work, and she's never come back. And my (laughs) other sister, her husband, um, was from Perth, so he wanted his son to go to the same school that he went to in Western Australia. So they've moved back there. Hopefully they might come back now because my nephew's just about, well, he's in his year 12 years. So, but I doubt it. Uh, my two sisters and I, we all own our own businesses. So but we're all in such diverse areas of business. My sister in Western Australia has uh, female gyms. My other sister in Townsville, her husband has car dealership um, right. in Innisfail. So yeah, we're all very diverse in our, in our talents and then I, unfortunately, I have a brother who um, I love dearly, but he's been a drug addict for most of his life. Mm. And I'm sure many listeners to today's um, session will relate to everybody's got somebody that they go, how did that happen? I mean, people, people are complex and families are complex and they, you know, people don't follow a rule book, do they? My brother, um, he, he, you know, I love him dearly. But four months into starting the business six years ago, I got a phone call from my mum saying, you you need to come and get your brother's baby. And I said, what baby? Mm. So I found myself with a a four-month-old baby who I thought was going to be with me for two weeks. His brother arrived a short time later. And I now have a four- and a five-year-old to to put along with my 26-year-old daughter. Luckily for me, my husband is a really awesome support for us that people think that we're crazy and we're doing all sorts of things again. I think I'm the oldest person in the drop-off line at kindergarten this year. I've already had a, a funny scenario happen, um, which I'll share with you. I'm, I have to be very organised. There's no such thing about not being organised. So they'd done two days at school. Then we had the weekend. We went down the coast. I'd organised the home shop delivery, had the clothes out, had the lunch boxes packed. My four-year-old son had to go to daycare and then he had a a special needs class in the afternoon, which he had to have a healthy snack, which I packed. And my husband got home and said, Rochelle, what did you pack Liam in his lunchbox? And I went, because he said, I got ripped for not providing him with a healthy afternoon snack. And I said, well, there was a mandarin, there was grapes, there was cheese, there was biscuits. What else could I have done any different to what I had packed? And I said, but his lunchbox is still here in the fridge what did you take? And so he proceeded to get the lunchbox that he had put in Liam's bag, which was 400 grams of shaved ham. 
So, <laughs> hmm. uh, yeah. yeah. And I asked him, what did you have for lunch? He said, I had some ham. He was yeah. so proud that he had some ham. And yeah. Um, yeah, my husband loved was it. Um, <laughs> and I said, you know, I can't make it any more clearer for you. It's labelled Liam. Yeah, yeah, there it is. Oh my goodness! Well, and and you instead of your ham sandwich sandwich for lunch had to have mandarin and cheese. Yes, that's right. <laughs> oh, I have no doubt that some in the take on board community are relating to what you're talking about in terms of, you know, the juggle. Want something done? Ask a busy woman. And it sounds like you are. Testing the lesson that. is you'd never take anything so seriously. My husband was mortified that he'd packed the wrong thing and, you know, wrote this email saying, sorry, sorry. And, you know, I think that that night we got home and it was bedtime reading for the boys and I have to be a smarty pants and go and get green eggs and ham as the <laughs> nighttime read. Interestingly, I'm hearing in some of the story a number of things about accidental journeys in a way, accidental journey to Canberra. I think, uh, was it your sister, you know, her accidental journey to Townsville, the uh, accidental journey to uh, the healthy lunch for the kids, those sorts of things. I'm hearing Well, there will there. be a book coming called Accidental CEO. Ah! So <laughs> you've read that right. Ah, oh, there you go. And and often, you know, the ac- the accidents... It's really, I would say, like just take the opportunity as it comes, whatever it may be, whatever that accident might be. It's probably a theme of your book. When's the book coming out? Uh, it keeps on. I mean, it's very much a comedy and it keeps on getting new chapters. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I've, um, you know, been asked to lay a wreath at the War Memorial. I hadn't practised in my high heels, so I fell in the flowers with every media outlet behind me. Um <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but no, yes. I've had the worst uh, chafe on a trip to Darwin that put me, you know, from not preparing the sweat <laughs> that was going to happen. You know, wearing a dress wasn't, you know, the right thing. I famously wrote to Gail Kelly when she was the CEO of Westpac and I first became the CEO of the Australian Indigenous Leadership Centre. And I wrote to her and I said, dear Auntie Gail, I'd love to have lunch with you and 10 of your rich friends. And she could either say yes or no, but she said yes. And from that conversation, we made some really good friends and we made some really great money to save the business that I was put in charge. But on the journey there, I had to go and visit her chief of staff and to go up to the secure floor, you go up the lift and then you walk down the stairs. And again, my first time in a corporate suit with the big, big Noda handbag and swapped it from one hand to the other. And the sign said, hold on to the rail. And as I went to hold on to the rail, I just went, get it, one arm did I break, but two. <gasps> oh, my God, before, this is this pre-meeting with the chief of staff before you're about to walk in with all the rich people. Yes. Oh my God. Did you make it to the, I'm assuming you did. Yeah, that was the, the pre-meeting. So organising who was sitting where. Working oh, out not the on the day. Were, not yeah, on no, the day. it wasn't on the day. And maybe because I had two broken arms at the thing, at the at the lunch, and they all felt sorry for me, but, you know, I'll take it. Oh, that's, oh, very well planned of you. It was a very strategic move. There you go, folks. If folks that are listening in, CEOs that are fundraising, just break two of your arms before the major event. Very helpful. On that day when I had broken both my arms, my I had to fly back from Sydney and my husband met me at the airport and he had, you know, the servo bunch of carnations and to greet me at the airport and Gail Kelly had sent me like this huge bouquet um, <laughs> that looked like 
you know, it was it should have been on the cover of a magazine. And well, my husband went, oh well, <laughs> that was my effort. But you know, sometimes it's the little things that you appreciate in effort. Well, that's right. He was there to pick you up at the airport. Where was Gail Kelly? She wasn't there. <laughs> she is truly one of my idols. Oh, and isn't that also a testament to just reach out to people? You never know. Like what's the worst thing that can happen? Yeah, they can either say yes or no, right? Yeah. That's probably one of my great leadership lessons is if you don't ask, you don't get. And if you get knocked down, what do you learn on the way back up again? Because I'm always falling down. I can't wait for your book, whenever it might be. Maybe you just need to do a volume one and volume two. I think Magnus Kibansky could play me if it was made into a a (laughs) comedy of some sort. I think uh, her and I would. Make the brief. Leadership lessons, accidental CEO, there is already so much in here. However, I would love to now focus on pipeline talent and your organisation and for board members. So pleasingly, boards are now increasingly talking about diversity and inclusion in the boardroom, which is great. And therefore, they are increasingly talking about, let's make sure we get a First Nations person in the boardroom or First Nations people in the boardroom. So they say, yes, that's important. Let's do it. And then they go off and embark on trying to get First Nations people in the boardroom and they find it challenging. They're like, oh, we advertised. Nobody applied. So I'm getting asked all the time, what should boards do? How do they approach this? So you're the expert. I think it's important that that, um, everybody understands how and why I started Pipeline. So six years ago, I was on a plane ride over to Western Australia to sit on a board over in Port Hedland. And Qantas had done a story of me in their in-flight magazine. So I'm sitting in row 30 next to the loo, not even an upgrade, Mr. Joyce. It's okay. Reading this magazine article about myself. And I turn the page and, you know, you see those in-flight magazines and do you ever pick them up? Some people do, some people don't. It's not guaranteed that you're going to read. And today, this day, I was reading this magazine article and I turned the page and there was this story about women in the pipeline and how women's numbers were increasing across corporate community and government. And it got me thinking, and it had some, you know, bubbles and, and of percentages, and it got me thinking around if I changed the word woman to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, where would the numbers sit and it was evidently flatline. And I can go back and recall some of the numbers in the Northern Territory government. There were 26 agencies and not one of them headed by an Aboriginal person. Mm. I think I had just been offered a senior role within government, within Prime Minister and Cabinet. And had I taken it, I would have been number 23 of senior executives who identify as being First Nations. And then I looked at the corporate world. I looked at the university sector. I think at the time there was around 10 PVC roles that were vacant for an Indigenous and diversity roles. And I went, I'm the CEO of the Australian Indigenous Leadership Centre. I have trained thousands of Aboriginal people who could be in these roles that could be a part of governance. We were teaching governance training. And that's how Pipeline was created. I got off the phone and went, I'm starting a recruitment company. People thought I was absolutely nuts, not knowing anything about recruitment. And I was ringing people asking me, how do I become a recruiter? And nobody would teach me. That was probably the hardest part about it. So I went, I'm going to go undercover and I'm going to go and be on the other side and get a recruitment experience. And it was absolutely terrible. And I went, well, know what not to do. 
I also wanted to make us different. So we are the only organisation, Aboriginal organisation, that just does jobs over $100,000. That's a really differentiator because there is many Aboriginal recruitment agencies that do the full gamut of services from entry to labour hire to executive recruitment. But I wanted to be different. And I think that's been a really good model for us. And I can now say that there is 0.04% of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are in those executive roles. We don't have representation on a top 200 ASX company, but, you know, there's only one woman who leads a top 200 ASX company. And so that tells me a lot, you know, where do we go in terms of seeing a differentiator and how do boards and companies trust people to do the job and some of that isn't I think trust is a really valuable word because Aboriginality is often stereotyped you know stereotyping of women people with disability unfortunately it happens we see that boys club of you know you know your mates and then you're going to get a board position So it's, you know, then falls into the, it's not what you know, it's who you know. But I think boards are now becoming a little bit more smarter. Mm -hmm. And there has been a really big push by government in particular with the Indigenous procurement policy that has demonstrated companies to really think about engaging with Aboriginal businesses, Mm -hmm. which then starts them to trust Aboriginal businesses. And so I would hope that things are changing but we need to just change the approach a little bit differently. You know, do you identify a job for only Aboriginal people that it can apply? My group of people that we recruit, they want to be known because they can do the job and their culture is a bonus. Yes. That's exactly what we want them to do because if you don't do it that way, you set people up to fail. You often hear that, you're right, around women as well. Women are 50% of the world, so there should be equality in the boardroom regardless, but that... It's that whole argument about and are you the minority and then quotas. how do you get the voice, right? Yes. We just need to make sure that the representation, yeah. we bring such, the conversation happens so differently if there's diversity. And as you say, I think boards are increasingly recognising that, which is great. There is a lot of work to be done, but at least they are recognising that diversity in the boardroom is something of value in and of itself. And indeed, again, this is often through the gender lens, but merit and what merit really means, if it was taken without any lens of bias, would probably mean that there was more equity and diversity in the boardroom. So for those boards that have started thinking about this, that have said, we need more diversity in the boardroom, maybe in particular, we need a First Nations people or persons in the boardroom, where should they start? What tips do you have? Where should they start? There are so many Aboriginal people on boards. Um, yeah. You know, even just looking on LinkedIn, uh, Aboriginal board members in a yeah. in, in a search field, like myself, I get asked all the time to be on advisory boards, but not yeah. necessarily on the real board, which is yeah. a really, you know, you know, why couldn't I be on the, the bigger picture board with lots of beautiful organisations that truly do great work? GHD in particular, they're they're one of my faves that I work with all the time you know they've got great reconciliation action plan but I'm also challenging them going where is the next layer you know people often ask me when will you know that your business has succeeded Mm -hmm. and for me it's like I'm saying when I fly into Sydney Melbourne New York Perth 
anywhere in the world and those buildings are lit up at night time and I know that there's an Aboriginal leader that's a decision maker that's when I know that I've succeeded in the work that I do I do believe that that's coming I do believe that the Indigenous procurement policy will allow an Aboriginal business to be listed on the ASX very soon, which will change my statistics, which is fabulous because it will change the landscape of Australian companies. Because of that, we will have an Aboriginal executive, we'll have a majority Aboriginal board. You know, there is a senior person in Rio Tinto who's an Aboriginal guy. It's coming. I can absolutely feel it, feel it. But if people want to put an Aboriginal person on their board, sometimes it's just easy to have a look and trust. You can put an ad up on our website. It's completely free to do a shout out or Pipeline can run a recruitment process, which we do from time to time board positions. Because sometimes it's easy to go, hey, we're just too busy. Get somebody else to do it. They trust in in Aboriginal businesses to work with you, even if you're just thinking about changing your supplier of toilet paper or stationery or printing or security. There is just so many Aboriginal businesses that will change the way you think about doing business. Yeah. It's a longer game in a way, building that trust. Use Aboriginal businesses. By the time you come to, if you've started doing that, by the time you come to recruitment to the boardroom, you will be a more trusted organisation in that way. You'll have better networks in that way. Yeah, there's so many great ICT businesses, Aboriginal businesses, some of those strategic thinkers. You know, there's many that I could name that are just amazing. Is there a case study you can talk us through of an organisation that's come to you to recruit board members, what they came to you, what the ask was and what happened? Yeah, well, normally they come to us and they've got such a hard decision to make with the people that we present to them, that they normally take two. And that surprises them in a way when they're reading through people's CVs that they are, uh, and then they meet them. And, you know, we work in the environmental space, we work in the health space, we work in the the government space. A really interesting process that I will share with you, um, because it's public public knowledge is Uruk. So Uruk, um, we were working with the Victorian government to find their truth commissioners. And I was quite nervous about the process because we had got a number of applications, we'd shortlisted down to 20. And then everybody's, so we're looking for five commissioners, everybody who was shortlisted to the final 20 were put up on our website and there was a photo and there was a statement of the 20. And self-determination at its finest so that people could go on there and be a referee for each of them, good or bad. And I was so nervous thinking, oh, my gosh, we're going to get lateral violence at its finest. But it was so well done. It was so well thought out. It was such a wonderful statement to see that people going, that's why I want that person on this process to be the truth teller, to listen to the truth for Aboriginal people living in Victoria. It was such a wonderful process and and I'm so glad that we're a part of that. Um, Certainly built our profile in Victoria. You know, there was a combination of both First Nations and non-Indigenous people that were put on as commissioners. Then we went on to find their CEO and we're still working with the Department of Premier and Cabinet in Victoria and because of that work, our profiles just blossomed in Victoria. That is so 
I mean, even saying that your shortlist, shortlist, heavy inverted commas, was 20 people. Incredible. And going through that process. I was very nervous, very nervous. But the calibre of applicants was just, like, it was just overwhelmingly the Aboriginal people, First Nations people in Victoria were just so proud and, and, yeah, it was just so exciting to be a part of. The first time that I've ever seen it, and would I do it again? Absolutely. I would run that type of process for a high-profile position you can't get it better than being an open referee. Well, hopefully there'll be more boards coming to you and it'll be about being chairs of boards or joining boards for that sort of process as well. And the other thing, um, Helia, we do is we've got this process that we call our black ground checks, so B-L-A-K. We've had it trademarked, but that is to check people's cultural credibility and capability. So we do that from an Indigenous point and or First Nations point and a non-Indigenous person. So it might be that you want to do a cultural check on the person that you place and it's a service that we do outside of our board appointments. So if you're thinking about having a First Nations person on your board, you think that they're recognised, credible, capable to represent your organisation, let us do those background checks to check that uh, so they have to provide us with an Aboriginal referee for them and we're going through a cultural check for them. In all board positions, you should be checking somebody's cultural credibility or cultural knowledge if they're working in an Australian landscape. You know, what is their knowledge of Aboriginal Australia? It's a cultural referee, but it's not a test. So let's say, so I was being appointed to Organisation X tomorrow And as part of the due diligence, that organisation might come to you and say, Rochelle, Pipeline Talent, can you do a background check on Halia to get an assessment of her cultural awareness? Yep. That's exactly what we do. That is awesome. That is awesome in oh so many ways. Oh, my God, goodness, brilliant. Okay. And I think you're the only executive level uh, Indigenous recruitment company in Australia, right? Yeah, there, there are others that do exec recruitment, but they do a whole gamut of things. We just concentrate on that. Right. Okay. I sometimes say to people, don't come on the podcast just to spruik your services, but I think in this instance we'll make an exception because uh, it is such a limited field and I want people to, you know, if people are committed to having First Nations people in their boardroom, they need to know how to find them and they often don't know how to find them. So if they've got the commitment but not the means, come to you and yeah, you will be the, the means for them. You- the worst thing that can happen in a board make an announcement to, oh, they've appointed Rochelle to her board, their board and the Aboriginal community is going, what the bloody yeah. hell did they appoint her for? You know, she said X, Y and Z about whatever or she's one of the people who are at the rally on the weekend, like painted people and, you know, you want people to be appointed on their board because they can do the job, their culture is the bonus, but you also want to check their cultural credibility. It's great. I mean, if it's a additional referee, right, what harm does it do? I mean, you're doing due diligence on the skill set that they're bringing to the boardroom. If it's cultural capability being brought to the boardroom, it sounds to me that this is a way of testing it. I mean, most boards wouldn't have the capability to test that. No. So it's probably their first ever senior Aboriginal appointment that they've made. In most cases it is. And you want to get it right. And I want organisations to get it right because I don't want them to go, oh, we've tried that, it didn't work, so we won't do that again for a while. Interesting. And I love that idea of 
all candidates. Potentially for organisations, this is another step in the process. You know, you advertise the role, you get your applicants, your shortlist, all of that sort of stuff. And then the people who are on the final, final shortlist, the very short list, maybe they come to your organisation and get that background check on all candidates. And if all of them have that cultural capability, or if all of them know that that is something that will be tested for them, they might turn their minds a bit more. I'm sure that there's many of the listeners today that have done a a cultural appreciation program, but by doing a program, you know, does that give you a licence to be credible in a cultural sense? If you take on the National Indigenous Australians Agency, they have all their jobs within NIAA have special measures or affirmative measures but Mm. every job requires a level of cultural credibility in that department and there are many other departments that require those to have that level so there are many that are now just recruiting on you've got to have a high level of cultural credibility. I love that adding it to position descriptions and then testing it oh that is gold right there and particularly when when you've got you know most organizations won't have a senior Aboriginal person yeah. on their interview panel. Exactly. That's something exactly. else that I do all the time is that I get phone calls. Rochelle, can you be our senior woman, Aboriginal person on our panel? Right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, so that's another thing for organisations to think about. And, again, if, like you, I went the other way and, and inserted women rather than Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people, thankfully these days, I hope, no organisation would think about having an interview panel without a woman on it. I would hope. I would hope, yes. Oh, Rochelle, fantastic. So many tips in here. What are the key points you want people to take away from the conversation that we've had today? I think give it a go. You know, don't give up on it. I'm more than happy for people to have my details and there's no question that's too silly. There's no question that if I don't know, then I will ask somebody that might know. I'm not a cultural authority on everything, but I have learned a lot over the last six years and we've got to break the ceiling and we need more women. We also need more women of colour. We need women with disabilities. We need, you know, there's so much that we need to to shake up and change the boardroom because we've got to change the status quo. To have only one woman on an ASX-listed company leading a business We can do better than that. And the only way that we're going to do better is if we shake it up. Here, here. Fabulous. Um, I think I probably know the answer to this, but I'll ask it anyway. Is there a resource you would like to share with the Take On Board community? Sure. Our website address is www.pipelinetalent.com.au. Feel free to give us a call. The number is 02-8001-6603. And we'll make sure there's a link to that in the show notes as well so people can easily click on it. That would be great ask any questions and hopefully we'll see more Aboriginal women on boards very soon. We won't forget the men because there's not no no Aboriginal men either, but, you know, let's start off with with the women. No argument out of me. Uh, And I can attest to how responsive Rochelle is because I reached out cold after seeing you post something on LinkedIn about Pipeline. I'm like, oh, my God, we must have a conversation on the podcast. So I just messaged you and said, hey, let's have a conversation and here we are. So I can attest to the responsiveness there. Oh, 
Rochelle, thank you. This has been so helpful for me and I'm sure for many in the Take On Board community about some first steps they might take or second or third or fourth steps they might be able to take to ensure there is that true diversity in the boardroom. So thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and experience with the Take On Board community today. Awesome. Love and peace. Stay safe. Hi there. It's Helia. That's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women together. So it's great to be able to share these conversations that I'm having with these amazing group of women with you. Now, can I ask a favour? Could you share this podcast with someone you know? Perhaps you can share it with some of your board colleagues or someone else that you know that's interested in exploring all things boards and governance. With your help, we can grow the Take On Board community. Last but not least, if you want to continue the conversation, you can also join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group, where there's lots of great discussions, tips, tricks and resources being shared. I would love it if you can join in the conversation there. You can find it by searching Take On Board in Facebook. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another fabulous conversation.